Shalom and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm Miriam Anzvin, and I'm joined today by Dan Seligson and Ashley Jacobs. Hello, friends. Hey, Miriam. What's up, Miriam? We are living in extraordinary times. The American Psychological Association reports soaring rates of anxious dreaming since COVID started. At the same time, there haven't been many moments in world history, certainly not during the information age, where everyone, regardless of where they live, what language they speak, how much money they have, are having a shared experience like the pandemic. We're all basically freaking out, and we're taking it to bed with us. Ah, yes. Dreaming. Dreams are wonderful, terrifying, revelatory, and very, very weird. I love dream theory. And as Miriam and Dan can attest, I have a habit of interpreting people's dreams without even asking them. I even wrote my college capstone on dreaming and literature. We at Jewish Boston have wanted to do a podcast on dreams and dream work for the longest time. Turns out, Judaism has a lot to say on the subject. To guide us on our dream quest, we spoke to expert Linda Yael Schiller. Based in Watertown, Linda is a psychotherapist, a dream worker, and author of Modern Dreamwork, New Tools for Decoding Your Soul's Wisdom. Let's summon the angels Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, and Uriel to accompany us and enter the realm of dreams. Linda, welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. I'm happy to be here. We wanted to do a dream-focused episode for a long time now. I, I personally know very little about dreams or dream theory. Ashley's really the knowledgeable one on this topic. But for our listeners, for anyone who's unfamiliar, could you start us off by telling us a bit about your career background and what led you to the path of dream work? Sure. For starters, I'm originally from Buffalo, New York. Start with start with my roots. <laughs> as a kid and as a young adult, I was always interested in alternative ways of gathering information in sort of mystical and esoteric and uncanny or non-traditional ways of learning. So I got interested in studying Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah, as well as mysticism from a variety of other um, traditions, including Native American and ancient Greek gods and goddesses, and sort of the whole canopy of you know, possible ways of um, entertaining both the world and the cosmos. I was in Jewish youth group in high school and in college and went on my first trip to visit Israel when I was in, my, in college, sort of fell in love, both literally and metaphorically, <laughs> while I was there, came back, finished college, and then I moved to Israel and I lived there for, for almost five years in the late 70s, early 80s, did my graduate uh, work in social work there, and then I went back and got a, an American, so to speak, degree here from Boston University. And then I've spent the rest of my time since the early 80s here living in Boston, worked for many years in as a psychotherapist in a variety of different kinds of agencies. And as I worked in different agencies, doing a lot of work with young adults and teenagers, then moving into the trauma field, doing a lot of work with trauma treatment, I also began to study alternative ways of practice. So in addition to my traditional background 
with an MSW in social work. I'm also trained in a lot of body-mind psychotherapies like EMDR and energy psychology. Ashley is nodding. (laughs) Reiki and hypnotherapy and and a variety of somatic body-mind therapies as well. And then then eventually I uh, transitioned into private practice and I've been in private practice now for, I don't know, 30 some years. And also in the, mid- in the middle of all that, I was a professor, I'm Professor Emeritus from Boston University Graduate School of Social Work. I taught clinical practice and group work there. So my earliest scholarship was writing about relational theory as related to group work. As I was living here, how I got interested and started with dream work, a friend of mine from my dance community who lived in New York, moved to the Boston area. And she said, I don't miss anything about New York. I'm so done with New York, but I miss my dream circle. So she said, Linda, would you, and she said to me and a few other people, would you join a dream circle with me? And somehow I just said, yes. And then my next statement or sentence was, or question was, what's a dream circle? So I was at a point in my life where I knew sort of from a soul knowing to say yes to that question, but I didn't know that it would end up being part of my calling or my mission in life to do dream work. And what a dream circle is, uh, in short, is you get together with a group of four or more people. You could be less, but it's usually four or more. And you work on dreams with each other. You share your dreams and you help each other to unpack them and understand what they mean. And I have been in my own dream circle now for going on 35 years, which is kind of an amazing thing to say. And over that course in time, have studied with a lot of the great teachers in uh, dream work. I'm a member of a professional organization called IASD, which is the International Association for the Study of Dreams. And over the last couple of decades, I've begun uh, moving my writing uh, scholarship from first doing writing around group work, then a lot of writing around trauma treatment, and then moving into doing a lot of writing around dreams and dream work. And I have a number of articles that were published on various aspects of dream work, which then culminated with my first published book last year on modern dream work. And I'm working on another one right now that has to do with nightmares and trauma. So that's my on one foot, as Hillel would say. uh, (laughs) Well, I'm so excited to speak with you. As Miriam said, I love dreams. And it's really cool that you mentioned EMDR at the beginning of this because (laughs) EMDR is a very effective form of trauma treatment. It is rooted in eye movements, which is what happens when you're sleeping in REM to help the body process and go through things. So dreams are one of my absolute favorite things. and, And what I love most about them is how they can really prove how unlimited they are and and how the answers to everything that we have looked for, we are looking for, and what we will look for, they already exist in our our minds or out there in the universe. We just have to find them. For those who are unfamiliar with dreams and dream work, why are they so important? So the way you described it, Ashley, so beautifully sort of answers the question of why they're so important, that dreams contain within them everything that ever was, ever is, and ever will be, both in our own psyche and in our own life and history, either available or often submerged or buried in our our pre-conscious or subconscious minds, as well as, as the Talmud would tell us, dreams are contain 160th prophecy. So this is in the um, chapter Barachot of the Talmud, 
who talk about uh, dreams as uh, possible prophetic ways of seeing into the future. And what we know about that idea of seeing the past, the present, and the future simultaneously is that when we can do that, then we're in sacred time. And I studied for years with Rabbi Alan Alman, and one of the things Alan told us was that dream work and seeing, you know, Alan too. Huh? We love Alan. Yeah. <laughs> Alan raised uh, me. <laughs> oh, I love Alan. He says that studying Torah or being in sacred time is a way of seeing through God's eyes. So I would love that phrase, and I sort of borrow it when I talk about dream work. When we tune into both our own dreams and the dreams of other people, we step into sacred time, and we have an opportunity to see through God's eyes and to share then in the tikkun olam, the healing of the world, both our own personal world and the wider world at large. I, I love that answer. I have to say, my colleagues know this, but I, I came to this a little bit skeptical. I left it not skeptical. <laughs> I, I have been I have been converted to a believer, but we'll go into that. What What is the this that you were skeptical of and converted to? Dream, like understanding one's life through uh, getting information from a dream. Oh, I see. Okay. And having it actually reveal real deep truths about oneself and one's life in a way that you were not cognizant of before, right. but are actually real. Um, so this is, Ashley knows all about this, Dan knows all about this. We'll, we'll get into this a little bit later. But I loved your book, Modern Dreamwork, New Tools for Decoding Your Soul's Wisdom. As you said, it does pull from a variety of faith traditions and cultural traditions, but there is this really special place in the book for Jewish ideas and thought. Yeah. Dreaming is such a huge deal in the Torah and the Tanakh. Or just think of Joseph's dreams. All of this stuff that happens in dreams is so in intensely important. Right. And in the in the Talmud as well, one of my favorite quotes is also from Brachot, which is the first tractate that Dan and I started when we began Daf Yomi, the page a day oh, uh, learning this past January. And uh, there's one quote, a dream not interpreted is like a letter not read. What are some of the key Jewish reference points or teachings about dreams that have really resonated with you? Jewish tradition speaks about dream work and dreams, both in traditional ways of approaching Judaism through study of Torah or Tanakh, through reading the Talmud, and also through the esoteric or mystical traditions of Kabbalah. And Jewish mysticism actually refers to dreaming as a change in the relationship between the body and the soul which I really loved. So one of the things that has helped me to understand this is to take a look at what Kabbalah actually says about the soul and what the soul is. And this material I'm gonna share with you now, I learned from Tamar Frankel and Judy Greenfeld in their wonderful book, it's called Entering the Temple of Dreams that I read years ago and has been one of my sort of uh, touchstones doing this work. So Kabbalah actually describes five levels of soul. The nefesh, is our life force. And that's the, the most innermost soul, the one that's most closely tied to our physical body. The ruach, which is a word that also in modern Hebrew means wind, is our wind breath soul, where our, how our soul relates to our personal soul relates to the larger world and our life mission and our passion it has to do with what our creative spark is as well. So there are words, there are phrases in English that when we hear about creative spark, well, what's that mean, a spark? And then that takes us right back to what's the spark of life within us that for me brings us to concepts of, of soul. 
The next one is Neshama, which is connected with our mental plane. And Rabbi Chaim Luzado, a 17th century mystical thinker, said this level corresponds with what is called our mazel. Like we know from mazel tov, but mazel actually refers to ast astrology in ancient mystical tradition. And, and the we have 12 tribes and we also have 12 astrological signs. And I don't know if any of you have ever been to Israel, but they've uncovered archeological excavation of the floor of a temple with the Zodiac laid out on the floor of the temple. It's just beautiful. It's up in the, in the North. And this level of soul neshama, they say, connects with our ability to see beyond our ordinary senses and perceptions. So. If we think about that one, there are many ways of thinking about what might be, quote unquote, a, a sixth sense or intuition or things that in modern parlance we might talk about as deja vu or synchronicity. And I think it also refers to using our sleeping mind, our dreaming mind to connect with the with the also, with the Ain Sof eternally. So in, in my way of thinking, the neshama is what connects the two sort of internal or quote unquote lower aspects of soul with the two external ones, which are the chaya and the yechida. So the chaya is the level of korban or sacrifice. And this is where our soul is sometimes able to actually make a sacrifice or self-sacrifice when we're acting on behalf of others and we're doing tikkun olam in the world from a very altruistic and non-selfish point of view, our chaya soul is, is involved with that. And then the final yechida, which is from yechid in Hebrew, which means singularity or all in oneness. So echad is one in counting in Hebrew, and yechida is the is the all all is oneness of uh, unity with the divine. So in Jewish mystical tradition, when we sleep, our two internal layers of stole kind of stay within us: our nefesh and our ruach. So the nefesh, both nefesh and neshama, have to do with breath, our breath, our soul breath, because from the word lean shom is to breathe. So our nefesh is our breath, our soul breath. They stay in our body, but the other layers of soul travel to the astral realms to connect with God, to connect with the universe, however you understand that concept. And they're connected to our sleeping body by a thin silver thread. And this is from Kabbalah, which is, by the way, one of the reasons why we're not supposed to wake up a sleeper too suddenly, because we might accidentally break that thread and then the soul would have a hard time reuniting with its body. So a large part of Jewish mystical tradition talks about our dreaming self as a way of connecting with the mind of the universe, allowing us to then have information come back into ourselves to understand current day dilemmas we have in our life choices or decisions we need to make, things we might be struggling with or unsure about, um, things from long in our past. We, we dream about things happening today and yesterday and last week. And all of us also grew up in, in families and in communities and in relationships with great things that happened, hopefully, and not so great things that happened. And in the in the psychology biz, we talk about unfinished business sometime in the world. And everybody's got some level of unfinished business in their life, just I think by virtue of being human. If we don't attend to it and finish it, so to speak, or digest the things that we used to struggle with, whether they're still a part of our life or not, they sit 
unmetabolized in our body and can cause either emotional and sometimes even physical distress. So dream work is a wonderful, wonderful way to access these things that our highest self really wants us to know and wants us to heal from and wants us to resolve. And it gives us a window into accessing resources so that we can resolve these issues or dilemmas in a deeper and more complete way. So Linda, I, I really loved your book and to hear that it was informed by your time with Alan Ullman, I was like quelling <laughs> a little, I was like, ah. um, I love Alan. I, I love the chapter of your book, which I think reminded me of Alan in some way. And now that you mentioned that you worked with him, I'm like, oh my God, that makes perfect sense now. But <laughs> when you talk about the method of dream interpretation that I think you develop, yes. Pardes, and Absolutely. it's it's a multi-layered scriptural interpretation and outside of dream working, but can you explain how the Pardes method that you've developed is used to understand the nuances of dreams? Sure, absolutely. So the word Pardes itself is a multi-layered word. So the translation at the at the very basic level, Pardes is an orchard. So when we have a Pardes tapuzim, we have it's an orchard growth, uh, excuse me, an orange growth. So Pardes is a grove of trees, an orchard. The word Pardes is also used to refer to Gan Eden, to the Garden of Eden. It's called Pardes in the Tanakh. And then finally, it's an acronym. So in English, P-A-R-D-E-S corresponds in Hebrew with the letters pay Resh, Dalad, and Sod. So that acronym is one of the ways we read Tanakh. We read Tanakh, we read the Torah at four ever deepening layers of understanding. And each layer has a different meaning. So the top or the simple layer is the Pshat. And Pshat, the word in Hebrew means easy or simple. So that's when we're reading Torah or reading a dream, that's the surface layer. That's the words as they're written. So the next layer, the R or the resh, corresponds with the Hebrew word remez, which means hint or hinted at. So then the next layer we get to is after we read the words in Tanakh or in a dream, we say, all right, what does this story remind us of? Are there any things that we have, we have an immediate association to, oh yeah, it reminds me of that kind of right away. It's not in the written story itself, but we have a really quick, easy connection because of the hint that's there. The third layer in reading Tanakh is the drash, that's the D, and that's from the word lidrosh, which means to pursue or chase after. And this is the layer that when we're reading Tanakh, we have to dive deep and we have to pull in halakha and pull in the commentaries and pull in what all the rabbis have said to really kind of peel the layers of what the meaning is. What does this letter mean? What does a word mean if it has a lot of white space around it or if it doesn't have a white space around it in Tanakh? So all these layers that are beyond the meaning of the words that we have to work for, right? We have to pursue or to lidrosh, to chase after. So I applied that in dream work to all of the various skills and techniques that we have at our disposal for doing dream work to get underneath the surface to what this might be meaning besides what's actually written. If a person has showed up in your dream, for example, do you know that person? Who are they in your life? Is it a real person? Is it a 
mythological figure? Is it a character from a movie or a, a book? And if so, what's your association to them? When you think about your grandmother, okay, grandma showed up in my dream. Well, what was your relationship like with your grandmother? Was she a loving, nurturing bubby who made kugels and chicken soup? Or was she hard and tough and, and challenging and you kind of dreaded holiday visits with her? The dream will mean something different depending on your relationship with your grandmother. You're dreaming about a house or a building in the dream. So, all right, this is one of the questions that I ask people is, again, is this a place you know really in your life or a place that's just a dream, a dreamscape that you've never actually been to? If it's a place you know, is this a house you ever lived in? What was the neighborhood like? When did you live in this house? Did you live in this house as an adult, as a teenager, as a child? So if the house in your dream is when you lived in when you were, you were a child and the setting then is there, chances are very, very strong that if you peel the layers of the dream to get to this pursued layer, it has something to do with the period of time that you were growing up and living in that house, okay? And then the final layer, the sod, means sod in Hebrew is secret. So that is the mystical layer, the transpersonal layer, the layer that allows us to leave the constraints of our linear thinking and our sort of being grounded or, or, or in, in this world to access other realms and other ways of knowing, including the possibility if grandma showed up in your dream and you're working at the sod layer, that this was a visit from the soul of your grandma to you in, in your sleep. So I applied this way of doing uh, Torah study to doing dream work. And that's how I came up with it. Yeah. So I, I love your idea, Linda, and Miriam will tell you, because I was taking a stab at interpreting her dreams before. And I, I really do agree with you there about if somebody who has passed, it appears in your dreams that it, it really is a visit. And I I love that about how what you were saying about Nishama, the ability to see beyond and our dreams are the portals for us to connect to the universe. And, and that idea has really been like it's not just limited to Kabbalah. Okay. Philosopher Immanuel Kant, like, for example, had this huge thing about a priori knowledge and other beliefs as well. There are places, faces, music languages, ideas that we don't recall ever seeing or hearing or learning about in waking life. And there are other ways too beyond philosophy that people try to tap into this universal force. In South America, there are rituals around ayahuasca, this psychoactive brew. People from all over the world travel there just to vomit in buckets. Like they literally emptied themselves out for the even the remote chance to be filled with answers from the universe. We think about DMT, which is also called the spirit molecule, which our bodies produce when we dream and when we die. And it can also be consumed recreationally. There's also peyote and other drugs that, like our dreams, stretch time. And you made reference to this idea of dreams being sacred. And apparently, like when you're engaging with these, you feel like you're seeing God. Mm-hmm. And when we look at Judaism, like fasting is a way that people can access the state of receiving. So I'm wondering, are there any other Jewish rituals, but specific to sleep and dreaming that can connect us with this sense of holiness? 
Absolutely. And, and I must say, Ashley, I'm very impressed by your <laughs> wide knowledge of psychedelics and esoteric means. <laughs> Not from I experience. Ask you how you know. <laughs> Not from experience, we really, I assure we you. We really have been like talking about this like episode and this, these concepts for a really long like, time. So over a year. Ashley knows her stuff. Yeah, yes. thank you. And I, I will say that my capstone in college was on Finnegan's Wake and Through the Looking Glass. It was a lot of like dream literature that led me to stuff. But I digress. So thank you for the compliment. Not from experience, I can assure you. <laughs> it's not even really a digression. It's it's sort of on point. And a lot of, as you said, through the looking glass, I know that's the Finnegan's Wake, but a lot of our children's literature can be looked at as what does it mean to go down the rabbit hole, right? Mm-hmm. Are we going into another world? What does it mean when Dorothy went up in her house in a cyclone and landed in Oz? Was she awake or asleep when she had those experiences? You know, we can it's it's not just sure. It's not clear from the way the story is told. Some people think she just got hit on the head and fell asleep. And Dorothy was like, no, no, this was really real. I, I experienced this, which is how we feel in a dream, right? We don't think most of the time, and that's a different conversation that we could have another time about lucid dreaming. But most of the time, we're not thinking, oh, I'm having a dream. We're thinking, I'm just having an experience. So it is as real to us when we're asleep as our waking life is when we're awake. And actually, there have been studies in neuroscience that show that the parts of the brain that are active when we are asleep are the same parts of our brain that are connected with our visual orbital cortex and with the limbic system, the emotional part of our brain, so that when we have a dream, our body actually experiences it just the same as if we were actually having that experience in waking life. So the way it's encoded with our brain is is the same uh, parts of the same systems, structures of the brain. In Jewish tradition, are there other rituals that help us to either prepare or connect to being connected to our, our dreaming life? One of them, as you mentioned, of course, is fasting, that sense of sort of emptying out the body as a a vessel that then can be filled with something else. So throughout tradition, there are lots of uh, examples of of fasting as as prayer. Also, over and over again in Tanakh, we we, we don't have the temple in Jerusalem anymore, but people would go to the temple and what would they do there? They would bring sacrifices and they would burn the ritual sacrifice, the korban, at the temple. over and over again in Tanakh, we, we read about how the smell of the smoke wafting up to God was or was not, depending on the nature of the sacrifice, pleasing to God. So something about the smoke and the smell and the scent, I think is can be, it certainly used to be and certainly can be today if we want it to be, part of a, a ritual um preparation. It reminds me, if any of you are familiar with the Native American tradition of smudging, they burn the plant sage to create a lovely smoke and and smell and use it as a purification. It's sort of plant-based mikvah, if you will. (laughs) And you smudge either the person who is undergoing um, a ritual transition in their life or a home or building, if you want to sort of clean it out from negative energies or evil spirits. And I I have a feeling that our ancestors used 
the smoke from the sacrifices in a very similar way that there was some aspect of ritual cleansing and transition because smoke travels from earth to heaven and it's it's very ephemeral almost as a dream so that's one thing that i can point to from ancient times but in modern times there are a number of prayers that people might say before going to sleep at night that can help create a transition from our waking life to our sleeping life and invite God and or the angels to come and and protect us or be with us in the night. Judaism is very actually connected with the moon and with lunar cycles. So the Jewish calendar every new month begins on the new moon. Women have a special holiday called Rosh Chodesh, where we celebrate um, the dark of the moon. Uh, I believe that this holiday came about in honor of, of, of Miriam and, and her contribution to not our... me personally, but yes, my <laughs> namesake. You, right, exactly <laughs> to Miriam personally, but also to your your namesake, your ancestors. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so there are pl- prayers to go to sleep by. There's a midrash that says that the Baal Shem Tov and also Joseph Karo were taught by spiritual beings while they were asleep. So some of the prayers, many people, many of the listeners might be familiar with the bedtime Shema. There's a particular Shema we say before going to bed. And if we think about the word Shema, Lishmoa, is to hear. What are we listening for? What are we hearing? So we're tuning in in our sleep to listen in another way. Elijah, the prophet Elijah, Eliyahu, was fed by an angel at night for 40 days. And the dream food kept him alive and nourished for 40 days like like Moses. And the other two prayers that we often say at night, people who are Orthodox, who are following the tradition, are the Heshkivenu. And the Heshkivenu starts with Heshkivenu Adonai Elohenu L'Shalom. So lay us down, our God, in peace and raise us up. Um, And spread over us the sukkah or the canopy of peace. So this is a prayer about being surrounded at night before going to sleep by the canopy of peace as a protective bubble, if you will, to make sure that we uh, wake up in the morning with with all of our soul still connected with us, and the the end of this prayer is when we invoke the angels to come and guard us in our sleep. The words in in Hebrew are B'shem Adonai Elokeinu Yisrael Miyamin Michael Umismol Gavriel Umilifenai Uriel Mecharai Raphael Va'al Roshi Shechinat El. So in the name of the God of Israel, may Archangel Michael be on my right hand and Gavriel on my left. May Angel Uriel be in front of me. May Raphael be behind me. And over us all, may the Shekhinah be protecting us. But the angels, if, if, we, if we unpack the meaning of the word of the angels, so who are they? Michael is he or she who is like God. Gavriel is the strength of God, 
Raphael behind me, that's the healer from Rofe, the healer of God. And the dreamer, Uriel, is from light, the light of God. So Uriel comes before us, shining the light in the dark so we can see our way into our dreams. So this is right here in our Jewish tradition about this seeing in the dark and being protected by the angel. And then the other one is the Hamapil prayer. And the English piece of translation of this one is, blessed are you, holy one of blessing, ruler of the universe, who casts the bonds of sleep on my eyes and slumber on my eyelids. May it be your will, God of my God and my ancestors, that you lay me down in peace and raise me up to peace. May my ideas, bad dreams not trouble us. May my bed be complete before you. And then it goes on to say, may you illuminate my eyes, least sleep be death, for you are the illuminator of the pupil of the eye. And the phrase in Hebrew is or lishon bat ayin. And bat ayin is the daughter of the eye. And what the commentators believe this is referring to when they speak about in this prayer, the bat ayin, which is clearly a, pay, a prayer about being protected while we sleep and while we dream, that that's the dream. The daughter of our eye is the dream world. So there's a couple of things that people may do sort of ritually in preparing um, to go to sleep, whether it's a prayer or a blessing, or whether you just want to simply surround yourself with a healing light, whether you want to have a real or imaginary talit that you wrap yourself in for protection before you sleep at night. That's a, a prayer that some people do. And if we think about it, we, we transition as we move from our day into our night and we do certain rituals. We turn off the lights, we lock the doors, we might say good night to our friends or family, kiss our loved ones good night. Then we go and we have purification rituals that we ordinarily do. Most of us brush our teeth at night. Maybe you have a ritual of showering or taking a bath before sleep and you change your clothes, right? You take off the garments you were wearing in the day and you put on special garments of the night. And that all is part of a transition from our waking self to our sleeping self. Sometimes we, we don't want to engage with our dreams because they are nightmares. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily feel holy or healing as an experience, and therefore it's not something we want to revisit necessarily. Right. I know that's been something in my experience, one reason I... I've tried for so long to, before I understood what I was doing, to shut down dreaming or not intentionally not recall. Right. So what does Judaism teach about the experience of nightmares and what does it recommend about engaging with that type of dreaming? Sure. The main thing to help comfort us when we have or engage in work with nightmares is the orientation of the Talmud that says, in every dream, there is a gift. Every dream, even the scary ones, even the nightmares, is coming to bring you some kind of a gift. And we might not recognize the gift, or it might not feel like a gift, or it might feel like something we'd rather quickly re-gift and pass on to someone else <laughs> as soon as possible. <laughs> but if we take the orientation that, as I've learned from all of my dream work teachers, 
all dreams, including nightmares, come to tell us something that we need to know, even if it's uncomfortable information, even if it's hard knowledge. It's something we have to come to terms with, we have to resolve, we have to get to the other side of. And one of the things that I've also done, which is just one chapter in my book on nightmares, but now I'm writing a book uh, really focused on working with dreams and trauma and, and nightmares, is before we move into working directly with nightmares so that we don't get kind of like re-traumatized or re-scared by working with them, we want to be really grounded and really resourced in our life. So you want to feel whether you're working on by yourself with a dream or nightmare or with somebody else, if you're working with someone else, that relationship, right? Can you trust that person? Do you feel comfortable with that person? Is that someone you feel like, They've got my back if, if, if I should need someone to get my back here. And then how do you bring into the room with you the resources that you need to feel safe, protected, and comfortable before you start looking at the scary ideas or images or people or events that happen in the dream? So you can invite in in, from Jewish tradition, you can invite in any one or number of angels to come and, and protect you before you go into a dream. You can invite the light of God to surround you in a dream. You can tap into the Shekhinah, the indwelling presence, and feel that sense of God within you as well as without you, sort of holding you safe. You can tap into any ritual objects or anything in the room that you're sitting in literally and concretely that help you feel safe, grounded, connected, and able to return from a visit into those scary realms to your current environment, which hopefully is a safe place. I'm wearing my, my hamsa, for example, and, and a hamsa actually traditionally is to protect you from the evil eye. So you might have a ritual object that helps you feel safe and grounded and protected. You might have Bubby's candlesticks with you in the room. You might have Zadie's tally with you when you do scary dream work. But whatever you need, you might want to bring a baseball bat because there was a really scary figure in the dream and you want to be prepared. Jewish tradition, mystical, whether you believe or don't believe, not only talks about angels, but also talks about demons. So depending on your orientation, you can think about some of the scary uh, encounters in your dreams as meeting with the demon world. And then what do you need to do to be protected from those dark and evil forces? And that's a whole other conversation, I think, about the nature of good and evil. But depending on your orientation and how you feel about that, we do want to make sure that we stay safe and protected for ourselves and our loved ones so that whether it's real in the outside world or real in the inside world, we don't feel pulled down or swept away by scary dark forces. So we're continuing to move you know, toward the light. And if we have protection and we have guides and we take it carefully step by step, even the scariest dream will begin to reveal its secrets. There's something there that we need to know or that we can learn. And sometimes the monster or the demon or the, the devil, if you will, a Satan, right, who's been chasing you in your dream, if you're strong and safe enough and you turn around and you face that monster and you say, hey, who are you? Why are you chasing me? What do you want from me? Or what do you need to give me? Very often, 
when you engage with dialogue with the nightmare or the nightmare figures, you find that they have information or gifts for you that you didn't even realize they were offering. So that's why working with our nightmares at a mystical esoteric level is so important. And then at a symbolic level, often dreams come, usually dreams come in some sort of metaphor and symbol. And once we understand what the metaphor is about, then we can take the steps to deal with the actual events that it's standing in for. Um, And it's interesting that you mentioned earlier about um, how all parts of our brain, even the physical aspects, like are engaged when we dream. And we do know that our bodies paralyze um, ourselves when we're dreaming to prevent us from acting out our dreams. And there's something that's very scary called sleep paralysis. It's typically depicted in art as a demon in the room or a demon sitting on your chest. And it's when you wake up in the middle of the night and your body is still paralyzed, but your mind is awake and conscious. So to remind yourself that this is what's happening is really reassuring. Yeah. It's just Azazel saying hello. <laughs> but I he's just coming to say but, hi. But that's one of the words, right? That's Azazel is one of the yep. sort of the demonic beings that can come through and and they talk about Azazel or other demons as sitting on one's chest, which is why you get paralyzed. And often when you wake up suddenly from a, a dream or from a sleep, you have that, that gasp because it's like, you've got to breathe your breath and breathe your soul back into your body again. And sometimes it takes your body a, a moment or two to catch up. That's the sleep paralysis mm-hmm. to the fact that the, the, the chemicals, the biochemicals that are going through our body while we're asleep that keep us laying in our bed rather than getting up and moving around, which is why sometimes people do have sleepwalking. They just simply produce less of those biochemicals than someone else. So their body doesn't recognize that it needs to be sort of paralyzed and stay in bed. It gets up and, and acts things out. So some people maybe who have more of that chemical experience the sleep paralysis more. So you have to have play a little catch up your body to your mind, the fact that you've woken up and it's safe and and possible to get up now. I, I love the idea of having a an like a comfort object with you. I'm prone to sleep paralysis. So the idea of putting something like within my eyesight when that happens, I'll have to look into that because that seems very comforting. Check your mezzosa, Ashley. <laughs> I don't have one. That's the problem. <laughs> I know. Well, that's what Ashley needs for Hanukkah. It, it's really interesting when you talk about how people can feel unsafe going to sleep because of what might happen while they're asleep in their right. dreams. And I've noticed that my children at a very young age, I have two young kids, and one starting around age two, the other starting around maybe three, would pick an object that they had to stick under their pillow at night because that was a protective object. That's right. I think that this, and I don't do that, my wife doesn't do that. So this is something that I think is instinctive to human beings. Sleep is a time when not only do you have the opportunity to visit and dream and predict and recall, but also it's dangerous. That's right. You're out cold. I think this next part, I have a couple of questions that are about context and the ways in which our modern life and particularly what's going on now might be affecting what we're dreaming about. Yes. And you mentioned in the book that dream interpretation and and Miriam and I are reading about this in in Dafyomi, but the, the idea that interpreting dreams is an ancient art, as this ancient art has evolved, so too has science. And science has taught us more than ever about the brain, about sleep stages. And then kind of parallel with that is our modern world in which we are connected, we're on all the time. Our brains are engaged 
good or bad, usually, you know, mindless scrolling, doom scrolling, whatever, for longer periods of time, taking in more information than really any other time in human history. Which gets me to a question eventually, which is, how has this changed dreams and dream interpretation? One of the things that Talmud tells us is that all dreams follow the mouth. And what that means is that it's important to pay attention to how we interpret a dream or how we understand dream, because what happens in our life and how we resonate with the meaning of the dream will depend on how we understand it. First of all, the final arbiter of the meaning of a dream is the dreamer, him or herself. In ancient times and in early days of psychoanalysis, the dream interpreter was looked at as the expert on high, and you'd go to the shaman, or you'd go to the rabbi, or you'd go to Dr. Freud, and they would tell you what your dream meant, and that's that. Nowadays, in our more relational, integrated world of less dependence on one person being the holder of knowledge, we tuned in to our own self-efficacy and our own self-knowledge. So I might have an idea about what I think your dream means, but if it doesn't resonate as true for you, it's not. I can say, oh, if it were my dream, I might be interested in this, or I might think about that. This is a Jeremy Taylor taught us to use that phraseology, if it were my dream, that allows you to offer your idea about someone else's dream, but still respects the integrity of the dreamer. So at the end of the day, what our dream means is going to be what resonates for us, the, the aha, right? When, when Solomon had heard the still small voice, because he's going to be the next king after David, and God says, well, what do you need or what do you want? And this came to him in a, in a dream, and he answers, I, need, I want a lev shomea which usually gets translated as a portion of wisdom, but what it actually means is a listening heart. And so I love that idea that the listening heart is the source of our wisdom. So if we bring our listening heart, our lev shomea, to dream interpretation, then we will find something positive, and this is related to what we were talking about with nightmares, to find something positive to carry forward into our life so that as we move forward, we are sending ourselves in that direction. Right. If we talk about a kavanah, right, an intention, the kaven is to point ourselves in a direction. So we want our dream kavanah to point us in a direction of positivity, not of negativity. So that's something important to think about as we live in this world where there is so much negativity around. I think that as we spend so much time with our devices and like information overload, what it means is we have so much more to process, right? If we're inputting, inputting, inputting all day long into the night, when do we have time to digest and metabolize and understand all this material in quote unquote normal times, meaning non-COVID times, we don't metabolize, we don't remember. So we struggle with feeling alienation or anami, or a sense of malaise, because we're taking in more information than we can actually metabolize and digest. We're not sleeping enough. There's a, an epidemic of uh, sleeplessness and insomnia that we know in our, in our modern culture. 
one of the things that has been so profound since the time of the pandemic is people are home. Often they're sleeping more. They're going to bed earlier. They're waking up later because they don't have to get up and commute in the morning or they're working out of their homes. So they have you know, more flexible schedules. And people have been reporting dreams like crazy all over the world. People are talking about these wild, crazy, sometimes distressing, but not always distressing dreams. And one theory that I have is that when two things I have, I'm thinking about in terms of dreams and COVID, one is we are surrounded our entire world with this virus, with this pandemic. So everyone all over the world is thinking about and relating to it either directly or indirectly. So our world mind, our collective unconscious is consumed with the same idea and the same dilemma and the same problem in a way that is unprecedented until modern times, because now with the internet and we're connected all over the world, it's unprecedented that we would be able to tune in and know what's going on in the minds and lives of people on the other side of the planet as they're happening, right, in real time before the internet. So that's one thing is that our collective unconscious is all paying attention to something very similar in, in a way that is pretty unprecedented. And two, as we have more opportunity to sleep more, to process and digest this material, we're remembering more of our dreams because we're getting, for some of us anyway, if we're getting enough sleep, we're getting an opportunity to process and metabolize our, the circumstances of our life. And then we remember our dreams more because we all have, if we're getting enough sleep, five to seven REM cycles a night. But if we're not getting enough sleep, we're, getting, we're not getting enough REM cycles because we usually only remember the dreams that we have just before we wake up. So if we're not getting enough sleep and waking up at the completion of a REM cycle, we won't remember the dreams we're having. So I'm thinking also that part of why we're remembering the dreams is collective unconscious. There's a lot of upset that we need to be attending to and working on together. And if we're getting more sleep, we're finishing our REM cycles so that we're remembering our dreams more. Thank you so much, Linda. This has been so wonderful and informative and just like I've been loving this, especially since if you asked me two weeks ago, I would have been like, I don't know about all this. But thank you so much for sharing your your wisdom. Yeah, thank thank you, you so much. This has been phenomenal. And I've already learned so much already from this. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure to meet you. And it's really exciting to see all of you being so knowledgeable and so interested in this material. And um, I'm just delighted to be here and to share with you the, the two things that I love most in the, my life, I think, are dream work and my connection with, with Jewish studies. So what a wonderful melding and, and meeting place for both. Thank you out there for listening. If you like what you heard, be sure to rate and review The Vibe of the Tribe wherever you listen to pods. Thanks, as always, to our editor, Jesse. Stay safe and wear a mask and keep your dream journal close by. Bye.